spend the number uh, dwelling on and thinking about uh, the teaching of the incarnation, which is kind of a big fancy word for um, the church's teaching um, that a person of the Trinity, God the Son, added a human nature uh, to his divine nature and was born on the earth thousands of years ago, and that he actually was here with us. And this morning, uh, we are going to watch specifically what happens when God gets near to his people. What happens when God gets near to his people? Now, God is present everywhere, we know that, but he manifests his presence at special times and in certain ways. And so when he does that, what do we expect when God draws near to us? If I were to announce and said, uh, and I'm not doing this, but if I were to announce and say that God Almighty was going to manifest his presence here at Redemption Hill Church next Sunday at a certain time, what would you be expecting when you were on the drive in? How might you live differently in the week to come if you knew that was going to be the case? What happens when God draws near to his people? That's our question. And I think it's possible that Christmas has probably skewed this a little bit um, in terms of preparing for a sighting of the God of heaven because Christmas can feel kind of nostalgic and it can kind of have that um, fuzzy camera lens on it, you know, with the shepherds and the wise men and Mary, you know, who's just serene and calm and she just pushed a baby out of her body, but she's just fine, right? It's kind of that like Hallmark, uh, Kodak moment uh, type of Christmas. And that's sometimes what we, those are sometimes the only terms that we think about when when we think about the coming and entrance of God breaking into human history, But the way that Christ came is more the exception than the rule. And if you look at all the times that God manifests his presence to human beings in the Bible, very few are like the birth of Christ, where he kind of slips in without much fanfare. Most of the time when people know that God is going to manifest his presence, they duck and cover. They hide, or they cleanse themselves, or they make things right, or they... They, they're aware of just the weight and the magnitude of the situation. In the Bible, and there's certain scenes in the Old Testament where he's, his coming is more like Hulk from the laboratory than the baby in the manger. Think about when God made his appearance known at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. If you remember, Israel was told days in advance that, that he was going to manifest his presence there. And so... They put cones around the mountain or whatever they use to kind of say, don't get any closer than this. Because if you get closer and you touch this mountain, you'll die. The people, they cleansed themselves. They abstained from sex. They consecrated themselves. And then God's presence showed up. And do you remember what that was like? It was in thunder and lightning. The mountain that he made his presence known on was wrapped in fire and smoke. The ground shook and the people trembled. There's a trumpet blast that announced his arrival. God spoke in thunder. That was kind of his language. And the people were so in awe of God that they didn't even want to speak to him directly, even though they had that opportunity to do so. See, God doesn't do anonymity. His presence makes a splash. He's not bashful. He's not concerned about the reception he's going to get because when the God of glory manifests his presence... 
There's a jaw-dropped reaction every time he does so. So while the unknowing world or the unbelieving world might approach him in a casual way or even have like a list of complaints for him, we, the people of God, we know better than that. So before we get to mangers and shepherds, I just want to help us to remember again who we are talking about when we're talking about God coming to earth. We're talking about God Almighty. And so with that in mind, would you stand with me as we read a larger section out of the book of Micah, chapters 1 and 2. Go ahead and stand. I'll give you an extra 10 seconds to find the book of Micah. (laughs) It's towards the back. It's in the Minor Prophets. We're going to read portions, most of chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Micah. Here's what it says. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, all her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste, for from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return." For this I will lament and wail, I will go stripped and naked, I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches, for her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Skip down to verse 15. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Merishah, the glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it's in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster." From which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you, and moan bitterly, and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord." Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. 
The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses, from from their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with the grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lie, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. You can be seated. Here's where we're going this morning. Just a few basics about this book and who this prophet is. Uh, Then we'll see that God comes in chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. And he comes and he does two things. He comes for two purposes. First, to conquer and judge Israel and Judah. And kind of lays out the basis for why he does that. But then he also comes uh, to gather and deliver his people in the final two verses. Now, we're going to be in the book of Micah during December, and Micah was a prophet who spoke on God's behalf to Israel and Judah for most of the second half of the 8th century, starting in about 750 B.C. In the first verse, we learned that Micah served during three different kings. All of them were in Judah. That's where his ministry mainly was. And so it's likely that he actually witnessed the fall of the north uh, part of Israel when Assyria came in in 722. So his ministry was somewhere between 750 and 687 B.C. uh, And he was a prophet. And prophets were like God's law enforcers. Okay, They just brought the people back and reminded them what God taught them to do and be like in the book of Moses, in in the Pentateuch. And so he was a law enforcer, announcing judgment because of their disobedience. And even with all this judgment talk in Micah, we're going to find that there's a lot of hope in this book. While he's bringing judgment, he's also bringing hope. So prophets were both law enforcers and hope givers at the same time. And we see that in Micah, in his book. Now, in the first couple of verses in chapter 1, we see that God is coming. And it's not necessarily in this Advent Christmas way. It's kind of God is coming, take cover kind of way. And the way that he enters kind of shows us that when Micah says, hear you peoples, all of you. This is a global nation, all the nations included kind of announcement. And it says, and let the Lord God be a witness against you. He's bringing accusation. He's bringing his case personally. He's leaving his throne room to come down. And to make his case. And it says he treads on the high places. There's this visceral reaction that the created order has where mountains melt and valleys split apart. Because he's majestic and powerful and full of glory. This is God coming. This isn't just anyone. And there's significance in God coming himself. He's not sending a prophet to say something necessarily. This is a picture of God actually coming And to judge us personally. And the reason why God's judgment is personal to us is because our offense is personal to Him. See, we don't offend God or offend generally. We offend a specific king who's reigning, who has a rightful place in this world and in our life. 
And that God is going to come here and he's going to judge us specifically with perfect accuracy and knowledge. I don't know if you've ever been in an environment where when the person comes themselves, it kind of adds a, a measure of fear. You're at the workplace, right? And you see the CEO come in. It's the CEO, right? Himself, in, in flesh. And he pulls your supervisor aside and they have a meeting and you think, oh boy, something big is happening there. Or you're a kid and the principal comes. The principal himself, right? Not just kind of the, the reputation of the principal, but they're there, standing. This is God coming himself to bring judgment and to bring deliverance to his people. And that's what we find when he shows up, and that's kind of our main point. What happens when God gets near to his people? When God comes near his people, he conquers the injustices of the faithless through righteous judgment, and he promises to deliver the faithful from captivity. We see what he's come to do in verse 5, if we start thinking about him coming to conquer and judge, when it says, All this, meaning his coming, is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What's the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria, which was the capital? And what's the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem, the capital or the center? He's come to judge the sins of his people, both, and this is kind of unique uh, to just a few of the prophets, addressed both the north and the south. So that's what he's come to do. That's what God has come to do. And then it lays out in verses 6 and 7, explains how God is bringing judgment on the north, on Israel. And in verses 8 through 16, or how God is bringing judgment to Judah. Okay, So he kind of tells us, he's come to bring judgment, and then here's how. And we'll need to go, this, go through this really quickly. But when he judges Israel, or the north, or the Samaria, in verses 6 and 7, he's basically going to destroy it, make it a heap. He takes this bustling city, this busy place, this capital, and after God judges it, it's like a field. You can plant there. All the talk about stones and foundations is just describing the total destruction that God is going to bring. And God makes sure, you'll see there in verse 7, that all the tools of idolatry that they've used will be destroyed. And ironically, the idols that the people thought were protecting them are what lead to their judgment. And so that's the word on north. That's on the Israel. But then he gets to Judah, which he's there and he's more familiar with the sins of Judah. And so he describes God's judgment and how it's going to empty out uh, Judah. In verse 9, it's kind of this sense that the, the sins of the north have kind of trickled down. And they're right there at the gate of Jerusalem. In verses 10 to 14, which we didn't read, it's kind of a list of cities that are kind of outside the main area of Jerusalem that actually were were taken by Assyria and taken over. You'll know that Jerusalem was delivered, if you know uh, that story uh, from King Hezekiah and those things. But these these are cities that are listed that the Assyrians actually took over. And there's a touch of irony with each of them. And he's, he's, he, has, he has something in mind when he's listing these. So, if, for example, just, I'll just use one in verse 11 when it says, Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir. Shafir means beautiful. Pass on your way in nakedness and shame. This place that was beautiful is now disgraced. It goes on and says, The inhabitants of Zanan, which means to come out. 
And it says, do not come out, meaning they're afraid to come out because of the Assyrian invasion. So all these cities and all their names are kind of have this irony to them because God is bringing a judgment against them by bringing the Assyrians in uh, to take them away. And so Micah is saying, and we know that the judgment doesn't actually happen for another hundred years, more than a hundred years after the time that Assyria takes the north. But Micah says in uh, verse 16, you might as well just shave your head now. Because it's a foregone conclusion that God's judgment is coming. Prepare your kids. They're going to be going into exile. He's so certain of it. Now, we need to note that God is talking to his own people in this section. To his own people. These are the people who have the law and the history and they've seen God's saving work. And this nation is this mixture of faithless and faithful. And so God is going to bring judgment Because he's no respecter of persons, right? Just because you live in a certain area doesn't mean that you escape God's judgment. And so God is going to conquer the injustices of some of his people in this act of judgment through Assyria. Now, why is he doing this? If we look in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, we see why he's so stirred up about this, okay? There's lots of ironic statements in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 that we read, and I'll just list some of them. And that's that in verses 1 and 3, for example, they wake up plotting evil, wicked things. But God has a plan of his own, and they haven't taken that into account. In verse 2 and 9, they're, they're coveting each other's stuff and their fields so much that they're defrauding one another. They're putting young families out. And they're violating the laws of Moses. But even though they've been so careful to get their little land and get what they wanted, that's going to be taken away from them too. Think of all the songs that were written about Israel's history when, when the, you know, the bad guys were defeated and Israel gets together and they write a song about how God you know, helped them in their victory. And now it's their enemies who are singing songs, taunting them. In verses 6 and 11, they complain about Micah's harsh preaching, which is actually supposed to help them. And it says that they prefer preaching that is utter wind and lies. Like, give me a, a sermon on liquor. I'd be interested in that. That's how, that's how ruined they are. The last one, they harm harmless people to their own harm, ironically. In verse 8. People just pass by and they prey on them. So all this evil and all this wickedness is happening in Israel and God has attached his name to these people, right? And so he's not going to allow this to happen. He's going to step in and do something about it. And he's going to purge and judge. Now we don't like judgment a whole lot as people, but when you, when you hear about people getting their land ripped off and people getting beaten up for no reason, you think, well, someone's got to do something about that, Right? And here God is. He's going to step in and he's going to purify his people and judge them. So what do we learn from chapter 1 through 2.11? When God comes near his people, he conquers the injustices of the faithless through righteous judgment. Now, what does this have to do with Advent? You might be wondering that. That's a fair question. This is a perfect place to start with Advent. I think I'm totally nuts for saying that, but here's why I think that, okay? Let's look at this passage through the lens of Advent. 
The glory of Advent starts with a conquering judge, doesn't it? I mean, this passage reminds us who God is in his glory, in his power, in his justice, in his wrath. We remember who God is after reading Micah 1 and 2, right? You might be a little bit shocked. You might not have spent a lot of time in the book of Micah. But it reminds us of who God is. And consider how much more amazing the birth of Jesus Christ is if this is our starting point. Because, think about it, Jesus is no less powerful, no less uh, just, no less full of wrath as the God who's described in Micah 1 and 2. In fact, the judgment that Jesus is going to bring at the end of Revelation is more severe than this. And yet he comes the way he did. That's amazing. That's a starting point for Advent. When we sing lyrics like from Hark the Herald Angels Sing, whenever we sing that song, when we say, mild he lays his glory by, this helps us know what that means and the richness of that. Jesus would have been completely justified to show up on planet earth in this way. Completely justified to do what Micah 1 and 2 are saying. And yet he doesn't. So Jesus is no less than this, and we are no less sinful and worthy of judgment, right? You think, oh, well, these people are bozos. I mean, goodness sakes, how could they possibly? Think about the sexual harassment scandals right now in our nation that are just cropping up in every you know, sphere of our society. And that's partial understanding of one sin. Think about what this must be like from the, from the vantage point of God, who knows all sin and every sinful motivation that we have. He knows just how bad it is. Friends, as we celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ came into the world, let's not forget to celebrate how he didn't come into the world. Why didn't he show up in Bethlehem like this? Maybe a simple way to kind of remind us or to prep our hearts for the season of Advent is to look, to fast forward and look at Revelation 19 and 20 and read about Jesus when he comes in judgment and what he's like there. That will help you appreciate and understand something about the manger, won't it? To see him there on his white horse in judgment. Even when our Lord was born, there were hints that this judgment was in the mix. If you remember how Simeon described Jesus, he described him this way in Luke chapter 2. He said, This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. See, Jesus would become the standard by which God would make judgment. He's the door that some will enter. He's the rock that some will trip over. He's the narrow way that some will find. And what we do with Jesus will be the basis for how we face judgment. And if you're not a follower of Christ this morning, these images, these types of passages are meant to be smelling salt to you. Our God is not playing around. He doesn't make empty threats. He is a God of justice. He is a God of judgment. He is a God of wrath. And these images and these passages are meant to awaken you to the reality of that judgment so that there is time to find covering under his son. Amen. 
And that's available to us this morning. God has created you. He has designed you. He is currently sustaining you so that you might find your way back to him. This is meant to get your attention. And I would urge you to keep listening since God comes to do more here than just judge. Let's look at the second thing he came to do in our last two verses in chapter 2. In 12 and 13 of chapter 2. He also comes at the same time to gather and deliver his people. The way that the book of Micah is laid out is the first two chapters go together. Chapters 3 and three through 5 go together and 6 and 7 go together. And the way that you know that is because each of those sections starts with the phrase, Hear you peoples or hear you leaders or hear. And then there's terrible judgment. And then it ends with this picture of hope. People who, uh, critical commentators who don't necessarily believe in the Lord, read this passage and think that certainly someone else must have inserted these verses here. And so critical commentators across the board say, this cannot be the same person. It can't be. Because you think, man, you're on, you know, you're in one track and then all of a sudden, I'll gather you like sheep. Like, what just, what happened? But we have to remember that the way God is towards his enemies is totally different than the way God is towards his children, right? That God is both a a holy and just and full of wrath God, but he's also kind and gracious and merciful at the same time. And so it's not surprising then that we find that these extremes in the book of Micah, because God is both of those things. And listen to how God is towards them all of a sudden. Verse 12, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. Like a bunch of human beings bang like sheep. Like, I'll still gather you. I'm still going to fulfill my promises. I'm still going to bring you home. Amazing. He's gathering them and protecting them and watch overing them. There's a tenderness in this verse, with his people. And it's because the redemption of his people is as sure as the judgment of his enemies. God is going to save. He's going to rescue. It's, that, it's this remnant he talks about in that first line in verse 12. He's going to save them. Now, look more closely at verse 10, though, because you might think, boy, this is heavy-duty stuff where he's coming in and just bringing judgment. But look at verse 10. It says, Arise and go. For this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. How does he describe the land? This is a place where rest can't be found. This is a place that's decaying, that's going to close in and explode on itself. And if we have that in mind, maybe the exile is better than what we originally thought. Maybe this is God Almighty not leaving people in the cycle, in the downward cycle of their own sin and delivering them and removing them for the purpose of redeeming them. Look at chapter 4, verse 10. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. Judgment, judgment, judgment. Why would they go to Babylon? There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. You see, the God of justice 
is always the God of mercy simultaneously. And when he extracts those people and he sends them into judgment, there are more purposes than just his wrath. You can also see undercurrents of his mercy, can't you? He's purging them. He's refining them. He's reminding them this is not your ultimate promised land. See, Israel's first exile wasn't Assyria and it wasn't 100 years later in Babylon. Israel's first exile was in the garden when Adam and Eve got kicked out and they entered a world that was corrupted by sin. That was the first exile. And what if this exile was meant to save them from the first one? I mean, think about the grace of God to just relocate people for a season so that they would know who, the God, who God is. When you step back and you start noticing, well, why did God kick Adam and Eve out of the garden? Well, they weren't going to get to the tree of life there. The snake crusher was supposed to come in the person of Jesus. Why did God have them wander in the wilderness for all those years? To test them? To strip them of their independence? To show them that he was their provider? Why does God send him into exile with Assyria and Babylon? To be gracious to them? To show them the fruitlessness of their idolatry? Do you see God's gracious purposes even in his judgment? It's because he's this shepherd who's also guiding his people to their eternal home. So the first uh, gracious uh, sign of hope that we see is that God is going to gather his people. It's going to be this remnant. Not every person who identifies as Israel is going to be in that remnant because it's by faith. But he's going to do it. But then the second one is even more amazing in verse 13. It says, He who opens the breach goes up before them, they break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Now, you might read this in your devotional time and just go, well, it's that kind of day, right? <laughs> Moving on to Micah 3 and 4. Uh, but there is so much in this little verse because this little scene takes place inside of a city that's been surrounded. That's happened, right? You had walled cities in that day and it'd be surrounded and be like, well, there's no more food coming in. This is bad. And so they just wait it out, and then they'd eventually take over the city. Well, in this scene, in this city that's been surrounded, someone has the courage to make a breach, to break through the gate and get through that surrounding army in order to get the rest of the people out, right? And to essentially save them and give them life. Who is that person, you wonder, in the first half of verse 13? But then... The last sentence shows us, the king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. It's God who's making the breach. So this is an amazing contrast, right? Because God's bringing judgment. He's taking his people. He's putting them into captivity. And he's saying, but there will be a day that I'll come and I'll shepherd you. And I'm actually going to take you out of that captivity. And I'm going to lead you out of it. Isn't that amazing? At the same time, God is both those things. He's the conqueror on the one hand and the defender on the other. He's putting people into captivity and then getting them out. Amazing. He's going to rescue his remnant. 
Because there are still people, even though a lot of people are corrupted in Israel and Judah, there's still people, there's the oppressed, right? There's those who are hanging on, who are remaining faithful to him, who are staying true. So what happens when God draws near his people? Yes, he judges them, but he also delivers them. He's both the conqueror and the deliverer at the same time. Listen to Romans eleven twenty two, when it says, Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Severity and kindness, conqueror and defender, judge, savior, all at the same time. Don't verses 12 and 13 sound a lot like Jesus? Where Jesus is the good shepherd and his sheep know his voice. He gathers the flock, his church, in order to save them. This diverse flock that's as diverse as the people who are there at Bethlehem, right? The lowly and the the mighty. The local and the foreign. And just as people flocked to Christ's message in the days of the Bible, so too people still find Jesus through the good news of the gospel. You think, well, when Jesus was here, he only gathered a handful of disciples, right? I mean, he only had a few. So how can we know that we're the ones gathered in chapter 2, verses 12 through 13? Well, God has always defined his family by faith. By faith. Not by nationality or socioeconomic status or even by morality. God's family has consistently been made up of those who have faith in him. And when God promised Abram billions of descendants by faith, You and I are a part of that family that he will gather. We have the opportunity to be a part of God's flock. But how can we be a part of God's flock if we're like the people in Micah, if we're like uh, these people who are tainted by sin? And this points us again back to Bethlehem. Why was Jesus born? In Matthew 1.21 it says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The birth of Christ marks the entrance of our courageous deliverer. He's come, finally. We can't do it ourselves. We tried it billions of times in the the Bible, and it didn't work. And he's finally come. Jesus Christ has made the breach. He's the one who's led us out, who's forged the way of freedom out of the captivity of sin. He's gone before us. That we might be united to his perfect life. That his death on the cross might be applied to our sins. We might take up our cross and we can share in his victory of resurrection. See, our Lord has passed on before us and done the work that none of us could have done. He is the one who's leading us out of the city that's been captured. So Jesus is both those things. He's our conquering judge. He'll call us to account, right, for a holiness without which we won't see the Lord. But he's also our courageous deliverer. It's going to be his life, death, and resurrection that get us out. So let's recap quickly. How does God come near his people in Micah, in the book of Micah? He comes as both a conquering judge and courageous deliverer. But how did Jesus draw near to us when he came to earth? As a conquering judge who would divide people based on their response to him, and also a savior who would lead his people out of their captivity to sin. Now, how does God draw near to us? That's the question. 
I would say, depending on where you're at, in the same way. For those who don't know him, he will come as a conquering judge. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you need to remember that the the baby in the manger is your creator and judge as well. There is still time to avoid meeting him on those terms. If you repent of your sin, which means to change your mind about who you are and who he is, you acknowledge your sin before God and you trust that what Christ has done can make you right with God, his life, death, and resurrection, you become part of his family, part of his flock. For those who have trusted him, he comes in loving discipline that achieves his redemptive ends. His discipline is patient and purposeful. Maybe some of you are just in that type of season right now. You're just not sure what the Lord is doing. He's a shepherd who will certainly gather. He'll certainly bring you home. He will lead you out of captivity. He will do it. He's promised to do so. If you're discouraged, it's good to know that God draws near to us as a loving father in that way, right? That loving discipline. So my question to us, and we'll wrap up with this, this Advent season, which do you need to consider more as you start down this Christmas road? How do you need to think about this baby in the manger? Is it this conquering judge? Is it this loving father? Is it this courageous deliverer? See, God is both of those things in the 8th century and in the manger and even now. So may God lead us as we look into that manger and need, need help in seeing him in a certain way, one of those two ways. Let's pray that he would do that. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this book. It strikes us as strange when we first start reading it. And yet, Lord, we, we know that it's true. We know that it's an accurate description of what you are like and what we are like and what you have done and what we need. And so, Father, we uh, pray that you would stir us and remind us that you are a God to be feared. You are a God of judgment and of justice and of wrath. That's true of you. That serves those who are not your people and those who are your people well. God, you are also gracious and kind and protective and tender. And I pray that you'd apply these things to our hearts in a fresh way. God, those who are callous to things right now, who are just rushing through, remind us that Jesus is also our judge. Awake us, stir us, shake us out of that sleep, God, that we need to see Jesus as he is. God, if there are people who are downtrodden, who are discouraged, who uh, don't think that things are going to work out the way that you say, God, remind us that you're a shepherd, that you are our leader who's made the breach, who's, who's leading us out of captivity, the captivity of sin and in the freedom of the gospel. And whatever view we need this Advent season, may you start and do a work in us as we slow down to look at you and what you've done in your son. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.